Hello and welcome back to ADC Spotlight, the monthly Archives of Disease in Childhood podcast, where we discuss issues pertinent to child health with guests who make you think, and about areas not usually explored. I'm Rachel Ekbeko, Senior Editor of Archives of Disease in Childhood, and this is ADC Spotlight. Today I'm speaking with Mr. Robert Wheeler. He's a consultant paediatric and neonatal surgeon at the Wessex Regional Centre for Paediatric Surgery and honorary senior lecturer in law at the University of Southampton, as well as the director of the Department of Clinical Law at University Hospitals of Southampton. Welcome, Robert, and thank you for giving your time. You're very welcome. So before we discuss the rather disturbing paper, Providing Bets for Children, which was published in the February 22 edition of ADC, maybe let's start with a with an expansion on your background, Robert. Um, and I'm interested in hearing how you combine insights from paediatric surgery with medical law in your day-to-day practice. Okay, well, thank you for that invitation. Um, so my, my background is in children's surgical oncology, and I've been doing that since the early 1990s. But, I mean, in children's surgery, I deal, as we all do, on a daily basis with all areas of clinical law. I mean, you know, there's, there are parents and there are children and parental responsibility and the various legal aspects coming from the Children Act, the Mental Health Act, and for the older children, the Mental Capacity Act. Uh, So I studied undergraduate and then postgraduate law. And then in 2009, I opened this department of clinical law at the hospital. And I I provide answers to questions, or sometimes I just take the questions and go and find out what the answers are. I guess I've provided about 1,400 written replies to inquiries from clinicians of all regulated, you know, all the regulators in the last 12 years. And of those, more than 200 have related to children's law and and 75 to the Mental Health Act. Those include three cases where our patients were awaiting tier four beds under very similar circumstances as pertain to the child in the Lancashire County Council case when they made the application to the family court. So you you draw a very distinct bridge between your day-to-day practice as a clinician and the area of, of law, and particularly clinical law. Yes, yes. The, the numbers you just gave, I mean, that's an extraordinary large number. You were part of several thousands of questions, but only a minority of that pertain to mental health. Now, that might be because of your clinical background, or is, is that reflective of what happens in clinical law in England? That's a fair point. Of course, that large number derives from a hospital which has almost every speciality, indeed, I think every speciality apart from transplantation. So it's it's adults as well as children. And of that number, as I say, about 200 related to children and then 400 related to capacity in adults and 150 to consent and 200-odd relating to professional practice, et cetera, et cetera. So Although the children's practice is very important to me, because, of course, that's what I do every day, it's a much wider spread of clinical law that is dealt with by the department. And as I say, it's all the professionals. So this may be sort of general optical counsel professionals. It could be physiotherapists, doctors, nurses, you name it. Uh, I've dealt with 
the regulator. So mm. it is a very broad practice. Yeah, it's mind-boggling to me, I must say. As a, as an intensivist, uh, I think that for my clinical practice, I'll, I'll deal with pretty much the final common pathway of many things gone wrong. Uh, and I suppose the, there's a corollary there in your clinical law practice, which is even wider. Yes, I, I suppose I'm, try, I'm trying to stop things going wrong. So you, you must understand that most of the inquiries are, as it were, before the event. You know, this child in front of me, uh, could they are they Gillick competent or this young person, do they have capacity or who has parental responsibility for this child? Most of the things I do are very low level, but nevertheless, they are topics that clinicians are worried about because that they want to behave properly. They want to behave according to the GMC or the NMC or whoever else it is who regulates them. And so they are generally asking mercifully, not in a crisis, but before the crisis ever accumulates. And so my little mission, if you like, is to ensure that people behave to the patients in a lawful way. Mm. Can we make a bit of a of a turn towards the paper now we sort of have your background your your paper in um, the february edition of 22 in archives had as a topic providing beds for children we know that bed capacity is an issue especially in winter uh, in acute medical settings but this is a slightly different bed would you mind having a bit of a chat about that yes and if I may, I think it's probably easiest to give practical examples. And I, I've looked at my data and I, I have three practical examples, all heavily anonymized, as you appreciate. But it's interesting that all of these cases occurred from 2019 onwards. So I think that the crisis that we're going to discuss in provision of regulated beds for children who have a mental disorder, of course, has been bubbling away for a long time. But I think it's only more recently, it's coming to the fore. So my three cases would start with a child where the nursing staff had had the child for eight months on the ward. And she had an, an emotionally unstable personality disorder. And they were trying and trying and trying to find a bed for her to look after, her, either at tier three or tier four, but a regulated bed, obviously, i.e. one which is being scrutinised by the scrutineers, by the CQC, et cetera, to make sure that it remained safe. And they found that after eight months, the only thing they could do to attract anybody's attention was to discharge the child into the community. And that was a serious proposal. Now, actually, it didn't happen, I'm pleased to say. But I suppose that gives you, looking at the background of the Lancashire case, that may be helpful. And there was a second case, a young person with a personality disorder and an eating disorder. And he had been in our hospital for three and a half months, and he was admitted compulsorily in our hospital, even though we are only an acute hospital, we're not a mental health hospital. And we were awaiting a tier four placement because of profound self-harm in this patient. The patient had capacity, but nevertheless could only be, as it were, contained, and that's a, a rather horrible word, but it indicates restraint by large doses of intramuscular sedatives. So again, it starts to give a practical edge, the background 
the practical edge to dealing with patients in this state. And finally, we had yet another young person with a disorder of the mind, and she was in a cycle of the, the police using their powers and then the various temporary powers under the Mental Health Act, the so-called Section 136 powers, and then the use of a 136 suite, which is a place usually not in a conventional mental hospital or perhaps in an annex of it, and then tier four psychiatric care. She was going round and round and round this cycle. And the question was whether we could contain the patient in our hospital in the absence of a medical condition. Her mental disorder is very clear, but she didn't have a medical condition. And of course, the Mental Health Act is there almost exclusively, not completely exclusively, but almost exclusively to treat mental illness. There's something about a duration of children or young people being in acute medical centres that are not necessarily set up for what it is that they're asked to do. There's maybe a bit of a concern as to sort of whether they could be constrained in those areas. Yes. And then there's something about what are the mechanisms that we have as a society to try to prevent these situations? Which laws do we have to our disposal to have a regulatory environment for that? Yes, because, of course, the regulatory environment predominantly, not exclusively, but predominantly in this field is the Mental Health Act, which, as you know, is age-blind. So unlike the Mental Capacity Act, which is engaged at 16, the transition between childhood and being a young person, the Mental Health Act deals with people of all ages. It's there primarily to protect the person who has a mental disorder. And that includes making sure that they are safe, making sure that they can be safely restrained if necessary, making sure that there aren't ligature points on walls that they might try and hang themselves from. And all of the rest of the things which are there to try and make the lot of a person with a mental disorder tolerable, because, you know, they are ill and they need to be cared for with empathy and sympathy and really very careful, planned treatment. And the acute hospital is not that place. But that's where they might present. Indeed. So in our emergency department, we do have a facility after many years for trying temporarily to um, look after patients of all ages who are mentally ill. And the point of that is to look after them ideally for a few hours, genuinely trying to find the right place for them to go, which would usually be or is often a psychiatric hospital in one form or another. And uh, often they're left waiting there for far too long. Mm. Could you say a bit more about Tier 3 and Tier 4 places? You, you mentioned those just now. So I would rather leave that to a psychiatrist. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert in that field, and I, I use these phrases, I'm afraid, rather blithely, but I take them from the court reports. Um, so, so I'm afraid my... My knowledge of those is as an observer. Fair enough. I think it was just to illustrate um, why these circumstances might call for a judicial approach. Let's let's reframe it in that way. Yes, well, that's fair enough. So 
of those cases that we've dealt with here um, over the last dozen or so years, we've probably made, I guess, about 35 referrals to the family court, uh, not all for mental illness by all means, and very few to the, the high court level. And the, the questions that we're asking the court are predominantly divided, I suppose, into private law, which deals with the welfare of the child within her family, and then various court orders to ensure that her welfare is maintained and, and how those might be enforced. And this would include certainly matters of medical treatment. So as an example, I guess, patients who are refusing blood transfusion, in, in about 20 cases, we have sought a Section 8 order under the Children Act, the so-called specific issue order in this case, where one can allow compulsory um, provision of blood if necessary. There are some public law things we that the courts will deal with. And by contrast, that's where the, it's about the state's role in protecting children. And that includes certainly actions re related to the Mental Health Act. Um, I guess presumably that's public law because the state itself provides the treatment. And then finally, finally, the courts will determine parental status and responsibility. And that, I suppose, covers the third major component of applications to the family court. And where would you say the provision of specialised regulated mental health care would sit in the context of uh, family court or high court in this in this instance? Well, well you're right. It, it would be the high court division of the family court who would deal with the regulated environments. In in the in the Lancashire case, there were I think eleven court hearings, and increasingly they they echoed the same theme. They were asking a judge to endorse a patient's continued placement in an unregulated environment, because of course the regulated places, secure or insecure or non-secure places, were just not available, and the unregulated places, places that aren't you know, reviewed by the CQC or whatever the current regulator is, are highly ill-equipped to meet the general patient need, and certainly in the Lancashire case, the patient's complex needs. And until a regulated placement is found, the judge is sort of stuck, and they, what else can they do but agree to it? Because they're not being given any other option. A child is in a non-regulated place, without, therefore, the ability for the state to scrutinise how safe it is, if governance is working, if confidentiality is working, if the child is being kept safe. But, but what else can a judge do? Uh, as I think I mentioned in the article, and certainly the common law is littered with judges saying that this is a disgraceful situation, and all they can really do is signal the state by its you know, components, whether it's a minister or a, a department of health, and signal in public by writing them letters and talking about it in the court report about the need for regulated beds. And that's one of the one of the things that I found very disturbing in the in the paper, Robert, is that a high court judge feels unable to uh, discharge of their duties in the most appropriate way, because there is no alternative than to condone. 
a situation where that's more than suboptimal for a, for a young person. Yes, I, I agree. And I, and I think it was it was interesting, wasn't it? You know, when the judge almost said in terms that he was unable to comply with his judicial oath. And that, of course, is, and the words are, to do right by all manner of people according to the laws and usages of the realm. And he, the judge, couldn't. He, he found it impossible to do right by G, the girl in the Lancashire County Council case, to keep her safe and to work to relieve her enduring and acute emotional pain. So that was a terrible, it's a terrible admission. You can, I feel for the judge and I, I feel for the patient. We don't have the stock of beds that's necessary. What do you think needs to happen? I mean, what needs to happen, I suppose, is more beds and more staff. Of course, that's in the environment, particularly post-COVID, where all resources are drained, all resources are stretched. And so I suppose there are so many people from their own specialities crying the same thing to the, the state, aren't they? And I don't see an immediate solution. But I do think it's something that children's doctors and children's clinicians of all regulated environments need to be aware of and put their voice to. Because I suppose at the moment, um, the more we speak about it, the more chance we have to go up the priority list to ensure that if our voices are heard, then our patients may be properly looked after. Yes. And was it Mandela who said, look at a nation state's wave, how they treat their children, and you will know something about that nation state's soul? Absolutely. There can be no keener revelation of a society's soul than the way in which it treats its children. Quite right. Thanks, Robert. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening. We publish regular podcasts about some of the best content of the journal. Please subscribe on your preferred platform, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify, to get the latest episodes directly on your device. We'd also like to hear from you, so please leave us a review on the Archives of Disease and Childhood podcast page on iTunes. Thank you and see you next month.